Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. And I know some local journalists, and they have years of experience in knowing what's going on in this region and how it works, and they follow the news, and they know what happened, and they know why you ought to be up on the news, too. So we call it Week in Review, and we get together and uh, enjoy an hour together. I'm talking about political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Hiya, Joni. Hi there. Hi, everybody. Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin. Hi, Jonathan. I'm not hearing Jonathan yet. Did you all hear him? Jonathan, see if you can work that out. Okay, he's working on it, perhaps. Um, Let's see. Publicola's co-founder and editor, Erica Barnett. Hi, Erica. Hello, hello. I hear you just fine. Okay, so we're going to have Jonathan join us ASAP. Jonathan, did anything work out yet? Say hi if you you heard me. Uh, Hello. It's getting better. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> welcome, everybody. And by the way, you can always watch the show. Not that it doesn't sound great, because it does, but you can watch the show on social media. We're on uh, YouTube and Facebook. You just search for KUOW Public Radio. Okay. Uh, first topic, you all know about the Florida governor sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, he had people uh, round up Venezuelan uh, asylum seekers on the streets of San Antonio and then misleadingly lured them onto private planes to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Well, the Republican Governors Association is asking its donors, hey, what liberal town should we send migrants to next? San Francisco, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, or Seattle? I know this because Seattle Times columnist Danny Westneat wrote, hey, send them here. We'll take them. We want them. I asked the mayor's office, do you want asylum seekers from Texas sent here? And they said they are absolutely welcome here. The city already shelters people in weather emergencies and, quote, we are leveraging that system for immediate migrant mass arrivals. Joni, you suggested we discuss this. Do you expect this scenario to to happen? Well, it depends on how many migrants need to be sent and, you know, uh, what the plan is. I mean, I personally wish uh, Governor Ron DeSantis would work on his hurricane and not this because he's just making political points. I think it's important for all of us to recognize that these are people, not toys or things that you move around with, you know, with some dishonesty, as it turns out. Uh, to make a political point. So start with that. But I do agree heartily with Danny Westneat. I think uh, the idea of a welcome mat uh, in in this situation is a good idea for Washington State. And it it goes back some time, our history with this. Going back to another member of the Republican Governors Association, Dan Evans, and that is going back some time. But those of us who, who know this story, have read this story, know that uh, years ago, we welcomed, we welcomed Vietnamese and Laotian um, immigrants, migrants at the time, and uh, it worked out really well for both the state's economy and for those migrants themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at some of the businesses here in Washington and Seattle and everywhere where they're talking about sending them, they need um, workers for certain things. And so it could be a very good match. And I think that's what the mayor's office is saying. And I think that's what Danny Westneat was saying. <laughs> the mayor's office told me there is a meeting scheduled next week with immigrant and refugee and housing and homelessness service providers, quote, to discuss how we can collaborate to serve our guests should they arrive in busloads. We are working with partners to identify intermediate housing options that will not impact ongoing homelessness response efforts. Erica, do you think that housing response would be to the detriment of people already looking for housing in Seattle? Well, I mean, it depends on, you know, the volume that we're talking about. And let's be clear. I mean, this is still sort of a a remote uh, scenario at this point. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're talking about a few hundred people, um, then no. I mean, I think that um, and I I spoke to the mayor's office as well and um, and to uh, King County, which is actually 
um, you know, the, the the place that has some of these housing options. They've uh, they bought a number of hotels for their health through housing program, and in the very short term, um, those could be used for refugee housing, and they already are being used for refugees uh, for a- Afghan res- refugees and Ukrainian refugees. So I think that on a small scale, um, you know, we're we're fine in the short term. Uh, planning is going on with the Office of Immigrant and Refugee Affairs, the Office of Emergency Management. Um, I think if you know if we were to get to a scenario like um, you know a Seattle scale version of what's happening in New York, um, I think that uh, we'd be facing some really tough uh, challenges. I mean, in New York City, Eric Adams is talking about putting people on cruise ships and uh, you know in these kind of mass shelter situations, which are not good uh, long term solutions. Um, and so, uh, so you know, I mean, I think that the city needs to be planning for uh, for all types of scenarios, including you know a longer term scenario where. People don't necessarily want to end up, you know, on the edge of the country that a lot of folks have, you know, family elsewhere. And so they're going to have to deal with transportation. And, you know, it's just a it's a big emergency planning um, situation. And and the city and county have certainly started working on it. But I don't know that they're ready for 60,000 people, you know, to show up like has happened in New York. It, the irony is that for asylum seekers like the Venezuelans that were uh, were flown up to Martha's Vineyard, um, if they were in uh, their their asylum petitions in the northern jur- jurisdictions, are much are much more likely to be approved than they are in the southern jurisdictions. So by DeSantis flying these folks up here, the chance of them becoming uh, long term, you know, uh, permanent residents is much higher. I, the the um, transactional records uh, access clearinghouse track database at uh, Syracuse, I pulled this morning. Um, has the the asylum approval rates for uh, Seattle is like three times the rate for El Paso, um, and all the and the highest rates of approval for asylum seekers and Venezuelans, uh, I think automatically or very very easily are are declared asylum seekers because the situation in Venezuela um, would be much better off having their claims heard in New York, in San Francisco, um, you know Virginia, Philadelphia, and Seattle. Yeah. I, we, we asked our uh, group of KOW listeners, our community feedback club, their 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 opinion. I asked, what you know, what would you do in such a situation? And there was overwhelming support uh, from these listeners for housing and helping asylum seekers, and not just in Seattle. We 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 heard from Dennis in Bremerton and Tommy in Polsbo and Alicia on the East Side, and on and on. Many of them from religious groups who help uh, migrants and refugees. Uh, Erica, are you, um, uh, I, I think last time I, I used the word like skeptical and you said, well, I didn't, I didn't say I was skeptical. But what is your response to such uh, outpouring of uh, uh, hospitality? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's great. Um, I think that, you know, when, you know, when I read Danny Westneat's column about, you know, we're, we're a welcoming place, and we would love to take in, you know, as many refugees as, um, as, you know, DeSantis and Abbott and whoever send us. I think that that is that there is a short term impulse to and, and a very good one to, you know, to provide shelter and provide temporary housing. The question is, you know, if we if we're looking at thousands of asylum seekers wanting to move to Seattle, um, you know, Westneat's column said, um, it's great. We have a little Saigon and maybe we'll have a little Kabul or a little, you know, um, I, I can't Caracas. Um, and I think that that, that language is very telling because there is a question about where people will go and is it, you know, are we going to be welcoming, you know, of refugees wanting to move into single family neighborhoods? Are we going to be willing to provide housing? Because, you know, there is, there's competition for housing and, um, you know, I don't want to see it become a situation where it's, you know, where will we, will we put homeless housing? Um, will we invest in that or will we invest in refugees who we tend to humanize more? So I think that, you know, long term, when, when you're talking about a, a large influx of people, no matter who they are, um, it, it leads to conflicts. And, you know, there's, there is no such, there isn't a neighborhood where we can just say, here's where they all go. So those conflicts down the line would be inevitable if this scenario does come to pass. And I think we have to be realistic about that. Well, let me, let me just say, of course, it depends on the number and the timing of the number. So, and I wrote down a way different number than you did, Erica, but I was going very quickly. So you might want to check me, but the number that went to Martha's Vineyard, if I'm not mistaken, was 48. That is pretty, pretty doable, isn't it? And then the number that, um, Eric Adams seemed to be concerned about, I wrote down closer to 1,100. 
But if I'm wrong, let me know. Uh, and even that, I mean, again, it's going to be the timing and what housing is available and who can make connections for jobs and for families to have access you know, to schools and things like that. So, of course, it has to do with the volume. But what we're saying and what I'm saying and what it seems to be that Danny Westney's saying is bring them on. Let's do it right. And uh, and I want to be proud of my city and state for doing that. Well, and and Joni, your point that the connections, having people be connected here, it goes to basically the whole intent of what DeSantis was trying to do here in Abbott. And they were trying to troll liberal cities. They weren't trying to have a clear pipeline of moving people, you know, out of their area, um, you know, particularly pick, picking sanctuary. You know, these are sanctuary jurisdictions that should, of course, welcome anybody in and just trying to. Um, so if there was an actual organized pipeline of people where there's a predictable flow and all that kind of thing, then if, I think. Right. But it's a political statement. And yeah, so maybe that means yeah, exactly. uh, we're a couple of weeks away for them stopping their little stunts. But, but the, but the broader message is, is welcome. Um, I just on the numbers real quick. Um, I, I think my, my 60,000 number um is uh, that sorry? That was the number that are of people that are in the main shelter system in New York City. So far, there have been seventeen thousand people um, coming into New York City, um, and they expect up to a hundred thousand. And in Martha's Vineyard, I think it was eleven thousand. But you know, these are oh these are big bigger no, no, numbers no, 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 than no. we're likely to see here in Seattle. Certainly, you know, a hundred or a couple hundred we could easily accommodate. And 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 this is all very hypothetical at this point. Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna move on and talk about uh, uh, other topics here. I just want to give voice. Uh, I'll give the last word to some of the our community feedback club members. Will says I see parallels between the Republican governor's treatment of migrants to Western Washington's elected Democrats' treatment of people experiencing homelessness. Both the migrants and people experiencing homelessness are extremely vulnerable populations in need of compassion and services. However, both are often characterized as lady, lazy, dirty criminals and drug addicts. Is there a moral difference between setting a busload of migrants from the border to Seattle and sweeping people experiencing homelessness from one park to another? How is this different from cities like Mercer Island driving people experiencing homelessness from the island to Seattle without providing any services? Uh, Phyllis says parts of the country's business sector want illegal immigration because it can be very cheap, fairly accessible labor. Farm workers, construction workers, meat cutting workers. Otherwise, we would have more legal avenues for immigrant labor and a legislative answer to this problem. And Joyce on the Olympic Peninsula says, I would welcome the migrants. I can't find anyone in the landscape business who's competent, arrives on schedule, and doesn't charge me $25 an hour to not pull weeds by their roots, just cut them off. Uh, just a few of the uh, – I thought that would get a, at least a visual reaction for America. Uh, and it really did from all of <laughs> I my I raised guests. an eyebrow at that all, last one. You did. I think we were all uh, quite visual on yes. that. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, you were. Um, we got – so uh, anyway, if you want to be part of the Community Feedback Club, just text us at 206-926-9955. That's 926-9955. Just text the word CLUB. Okay, uh, speaking of governments controlling people's movements, Erica, King County – has said it will close its youth detention center by 2025. You've written about that this week. How's that going? Well, so this is a promise that Dow Constantine, King County Executive, made um, during uh, in 2020 amid the protests against police uh, brutality. And um, how's it going? Well, uh, we've roughly doubled the number of people um, who are of kids who are in the um, I'm going to call it the youth jail just for brevity um, instead of using the acronyms hmm. that uh, that the county prefers. So uh, there's about roughly 40, 42 um, kids uh, up from about 17 at the lowest point um, in August of last year. So these are small numbers regardless, but uh, but there is uh, there's definitely um there's definitely been very slow progress, if any, on, you know, on moving toward closing down this facility. Um, there's questions about, you know, do we want to be, you know, do do we need to have a place, you know, where kids who've committed kind of the worst crimes and don't have good alternatives uh, to be securely detained? Um, you know, what should that look like? If so, should it be a house? Um, you know, there's there's a, a so-called Michigan model where it's a little more like group housing, Um and of course, the youth jail uh, just opened in February of uh, of this year. So, 
uh, this is, you know, the new youth detention center that is uh, that it's on its way to closure. So um, I think there's a lot of questions about whether this is very uh, realistic. The prosecutor's office certainly doesn't, you know, told me that they they don't believe that it is realistic. And uh, and meanwhile, um, the whole process has moved over to the social service arm of the county from the jail arm. And they took over a couple months ago. So it's, um, you know, it's it's slow going. And, uh, and and meanwhile, just like the adult jail, the juvenile jail is uh, hemorrhaging staff, um, extremely short staffed, and that's causing all kinds of problems like um, the increased use of solitary confinement, which I wrote about this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Erica, um, Erica has, has uh, been reporting on this, I know, uh, specifically and learning about it. I, I, I'll ask you and, and also um, Jonathan and Joni have some experience on this topic in general. I'm wondering whether you see what connection, if any, you see between our local politicians making, you could call them unfulfilled promises, you call them unrealistic visions, but this idea that we're going to move away from from jailing, we're going to move away from policing. What connection do you see? Do you see naivete or dishonesty? This is the pandemic's fault. This is the supply chain's fault. What should our listeners make of this? Well, I'll say there was, you know, there was some, you know, promises made in in the heat of things that that are always going to bump into reality. How about that? That, uh, you know, it's a good idea. Well, it's a great idea. These kids should not be in solitary confinement. And that does speak to the labor issue we were discussing just a few minutes ago, that we need workers for this to avoid that. That's a that's very simple. We should not be doing that. And and I think we probably all agree on that Uh, on the long term goal. You know, what I think wasn't well communicated or maybe needs to be better explained is how you go from building this new facility to wanting to completely replace the work that it does. That's going to take some work and some time. And so maybe the timing is going to work and I'm missing something, but I doubt it's going to work. Can I jump in really quick? I just want to correct myself on on air. Um, I said that it was it opened February of this year or earlier this year. No, that, it opened that. earlier in the year that uh, that the county executive promised to close it in 2020. So just want to correct. Yeah, myself but even on that. so, just folks know that they were taxed. They had to pay for it. It had all this, you know, uh, a little bit of fanfare when it was going to be a thing, and then you know, quite the pivot for we're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be some better communication on that. Uh, yeah. So folks understand they built a building and now we're going to do something different. And I'm not challenging the goal of that at all. I just think it needs to be better explained. Yeah, it's clear that the the youth jail um, pledge by Dow, it, hit, it did hit, hit into some reality um, because it was made in the midst of a very concerted and effective advocacy effort by um, the no youth jail folks that were really had, had launched a very um, coordinated campaign. Um, you know, when my, when I was reporting on the youth jail um, now a few years ago, the most of the kids that were in there were in there for very, for, for violent offenses. Um, they were not, um, they were not having kids overnight or any periods of time for lower level offenses. There was a much that at times in the past, there were kids in there for what they called status offenses, which were like running away. Um, and even in some cases, um, truancy in other parts of the state has been, um, kids have been jailed for that. Um, they'd really moved away from the status offenses. So um, I think going to um, Joni's point about what kind of services you're going to provide both for public safety and for these kids that are caught up in oftentimes very serious charges and, you know, up to murder. Um, what are you, what are you going to do to make sure the kids are um, themselves safe uh, and that the community is safe? And I just don't think that this is kind of, there's a, there's a, the same way that the defund um, pledges were made in the midst of the, um, the racial justice protests in uh, 2020, there wasn't really a clear thought process articulated about what a, what a, what are 50% reduction, I think, when some of the council members pledged what that actually meant. I think in the sense of fairness with, now, some of them want out of it, although they haven't stated sure. it clearly or well enough for my purposes. It's much easier for a politician to make a pledge that appeals to a progressive or for an advocacy group um, than it is to actually then do the, the hard policy work and budget work um, to actually fulfill that. 
Erica, well, any final be, thoughts? Yeah, to be clear, I mean, they this is a this is a somewhat smaller ask when you're talking about you know a couple dozen um, kids, um, and I and I think that you know no one is proposing to simply close down the jail and and let you know, and, and replace it with nothing. Um, I think that is a much, much easier ask, um, although not an easy one than, uh, than defunding the police, which, you know, now the, the debate is, uh, how can we best refund the police and the police, of course, were never actually defunded. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think it is, I think it is a lift. I think it is a, a lift that is, you know, it, it could be achieved. There are places that have achieved zero female, uh, youth detention. So, uh, they're working on it. I just, you know, I, I am, I'm a little skeptical about the timeline and, and how things are going so far. An adjacent topic here, there are groups that King County contracts with to help find alternatives to youth jail. This week, KOW published an investigation into one of those subcontractors. Uh, Salim Robinson runs a county-funded youth outreach, or has been county-funded, youth outreach program called Renegades for Life. Jonathan, he turns out he misrepresented himself to the county, and it sounds like it wasn't very hard to do. Yeah, the the, the contractor that Ann Dornfeld wrote about, which, and by the way, as a consumer of investigative news, uh, this is really was really good work by Ann, and it was um, so well written too. Yeah, pretty I clear. Agree. I agree. Yeah, um, and the yeah he had a he had a history that was um, relatively uh, clear, multiple name changes and multiple. Um, serious uh, criminal um, criminal cases, including um, including juvenile. Um, he was on the sex offender registry, and um, you know th- this resonated with me because um, when I was um, editing the Project Homeless team, we saw again and again some funda- lap- fundamental lapses in grant management. Um, King County and Seattle, on the human services side, are are, are mostly um, outsourcers. They 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 do. Uh, contracts with nonprofits and they outsource the services. And we certainly saw with, I saw in the, in the, the homeless services world, and then also editing a story on the best starts for kids levy, um, where there's also a, a tremendously large grant making operation. Um, the, the, the contract management just really didn't, didn't follow with the amount of public money that was going out. So when you see that they don't, they didn't have a routine background checking requirement, for this type of service, it wasn't terribly surprising. To, I mean, it's surprising. It's shocking. Of course, you should make sure that people working with youth using public dollars um, pass the kind of routine background checking that um, teachers and um, social services workers of the state, everybody would have to have to um, comply with. Um, but it does go to a theme for me in seeing how the Seattle and King County manage these kind of contracts. By the way, the county's contractor that oversees um, this this sort of subcontractor told us yesterday that they have terminated um, Robinson's contract. Um, so- and also, didn't they decide that they're gonna they're gonna require background checks? Yes. I mean, now, this, yeah. is, yeah. this is so obvious that they, this yeah. needs to be done, and it's not a heavy lift. And a you know, sort of thanks to Ann Dornfeld for for writing this, so we can make this change like this. We don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about it. That's what we call a high impact uh, investigative story. The change is immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Erica, yeah, do you I agree mean, I, that's I think, the answer. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that um, that this is something that the county. I mean, I do, I do think it would be a heavy lift for the county to um, ensure background checks for every single subcontractor of every single contractor that they have, because that's probably thousands. Um, well, what about people requ- who deal with young people? Let's just start right there. We can do that. Sure. That's doable. sure. So, so yeah, not not disputing um, that that's important, um, but but that might be something that needs to be required of contractors. And and uh, in this case, the direct contractor is a group called Community Passageways. Um, and I and I think, you know, I mean, pulling back a little bit, I mean, I agree with everything everybody's saying about that. That story was amazing. It was so well written. And I could I was I was jealous of some of the writing um, just because it was, was like, wonderful. wow, she just like picked the right details. And um, yeah, I mean, just a, a masterclass um, in investigative reporting. Um, I, big picture. I think that this is going to be um, potentially really bad for um, for some other programs that are just getting off the ground, um, like uh, restorative community pathways, because that community passageways, boy, it's a lot of similar names, um, 
is, uh, it, you know, is one of the big contractors under that um, program. Uh, Dow Constantine and uh, the county prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, were standing in front of community passageways and some of its kids that it's helped um, at a recent press conference on, you know, why this program is good. And, you know, and it's being attacked, um, restorative community pathways by, um, by uh, folks like Jim Farrell, who's running for prosecutor, you know, saying that there's no accountability. And I think stories like this um, definitely uh, contribute to that narrative, um, you know, and concern around um, accountability. Uh, but again, like just an absolutely amazing story. Um, and I, I, I hope that she follows up because I've got I've got lots of uh, lots of questions that that raised uh, for me about uh, about the contracting process. Well, before we take a break here on Week in Review, one more adjacent topic. I saw that the Seattle Police Department has fired an officer who was harassing and mocking people with a fake Twitter account. And my reaction was, well, wouldn't any police chief have fired that guy? (laughs) Or is this this especially telling about... uh, Eric, I think you uh, was Eric that brought this up. I think was uh, is this is this especially telling about the newly chosen uh, police chief Adrian Diaz? Well, I mean, is it especially telling? Uh, no, I mean, I think Diaz is a pretty status quo pick for um, for for police chief. Uh, that said, um, I think it is um, I think it is sending a symbolic message to police officers and to the public that. You know, when you have somebody who's really, I mean, this guy was, you know, mocking the death of protesters, you know, mocking George Floyd. Um, and he's also had like 10 other complaints. So, uh, you know, I think it I think it sends a message that um, that at least really bad cops, um, you know, Diaz is going to to take action. Um, and, you know, I mean, his he, um, uh, you know, reportedly terminated his own brother who was on the force um, for uh, not obeying COVID protocols. So, hmm. you know, that was not widely publicized. I wrote about it a little bit, but, um, you know, I think I think it sends a message. So in that sense, um, yeah, I do think it's potentially impactful. Well, I know that Seattle has a bunch of uh, officers, vacancies. They want to hire new officers. They want to change the culture. Is there such a thing as a progressive police academy like the Evergreen State College of Police Academies that that only graduates progressive cops and liberal cities can just recruit from there? I mean, are there uh, different? My call. Yes. My, my colleague, uh, Sarah Jean Green, um, wrote this week about uh, a program called Before the Badge. These are people that are um, either pre-recruits or in the early recruitment stage going out and spending time in the community with the, with the groups they're going to be policing, um, which seems uh, like a, a great idea. And it seems actually kind of such a good idea. I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen before. Yeah. Um, so if you're if you're going to have a more yeah, culturally but- sensitive police. Wait, wait, go ahead, Johnny. No, no, go ahead. You finish your sentence, but I have something to add. Yeah. And, um, and one thing I would say, too, is that, um, you know, it's one thing to fire one officer. But um, what we've found is that um, that weeding out um, a, one officer from all policing is more of a work in progress. The state has this decertification process where you have to have a certification to carry a badge and a gun. Uh, and the certificate, decertification process has been very weak in Washington for a long time. Um, my um, One of my reporters Mike Riker wrote about that they had never decertified a cop for you for misuse of force. Um, there, that process is strengthening a little bit, but absent a better decertification process, it very well could be this officer that was fired from SPD could just go hop to another department nearby, and there's not really a uh, there's not really a, a check on that absent a police chief or a sheriff um, deciding to have very vigorous background uh, background checking um, for their recruitment process. So a few really quick points here. First of all, any chief would have fired this particular individual. But what's not very well known, and I'm sort of challenging you, Erica, on status quo, is that Diaz has already fired and disciplined and moved around quite a few um, officers. He doesn't beat his chest so much and talk a lot, but that's actually true. And then also this before the badge program that you brought up, Jonathan, um, it's Diaz's idea, so it's a change. And I just I think it's so interesting that, that what you would do is send officers out into the community first and sort of train them. And who are these people? And who will you be policing? By flipping the order and then going to regular police training, I just think it's it's really a um, a new idea 
And from what I'm understanding, you have police departments around the country and even the Department of Justice calling up and saying, hey, we want to know more. So it is a change move. And, okay. and we, we can all give them credit for that, I, hey, I think. Hey, team, we're in like the sixth inning of this, uh, of this show. <laughs> and if we're, if we're going to end this show uh, uh, with a victory, it's going to be like a walk-off home run in the bottom of the end of the show. So, so let, we've got to take a break and come back with more, with energy, with more of KUOW's Weekend Review. Right back. This podcast is free, and it's accessible to everyone, thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org, or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! KUOW's Week in Review this week is Public Cola's Erica Barnett, the Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin, political analyst Joni Balter. I'm Bill Radke, and this hour we've been talking uh, quite a bit about some of the issues like homelessness uh, that Seattle is has become infamous for, crime being another. And I bring this up because, Joni, you were telling me that the Republican U.S. Senate challenger to Patty Murray seems to be running against the city of Seattle. How is how is uh, Tiffany Smiley trying to tie Patty Murray to uh, increased crime? Uh, I just want to say before I start that, um, you know, when you talk about a Senate race, especially one as heated as this, that many people see the world differently. They or even I might go easier on a candidate that that we agree with and um, and and more than than one I don't don't agree with or we don't agree with. Anyway, so running against Seattle, it's a long story tradition uh, and that, that previously has not worked. So. Um, going back in time, Slade Gorton running against Maria Cantwell for the U.S. Senate. She tried it. Now, that's going back a while, but it didn't work. And I'll tell you why it didn't work. It's because people across the state like Seattle for different reasons. You were just talking mariners, sports, arts, visits, and just general pride. Um, you could argue that it's, you know, that love has weakened a little bit because of some of the actions by the Seattle City Council on defund. Uh, I don't think it's going to work this time either, but I will say that um, Tiffany Smiley is sort of running a sort of spirited campaign and maybe in another state it might work. Erica, uh, Tiffany, uh, sorry, did I miss a a hand raised? Maybe Um, I did. Okay. Um, So meanwhile, Senator Murray is uh, and many Democrats are running against the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And uh, Smiley has the Republican has said that she will she would oppose a nationwide abortion law, would vote to continue to fund Planned Parenthood and give women access to health care and contraception. So, um, Erica, is is Senator Murray exaggerating that issue, exaggerating how threatened Washington state abortion rights really are? Well, first, I want to say, I think that this sort of anti-Seattle thing is also part of a nationwide strategy. Um, And a lot of Tiffany Smiley's strategies are very similar to those in other cities, um, you know, of demonizing cities as sort of hellscapes of crime and homelessness and decay and, you know, the lack of morality, et cetera. Um, I I do think that, I mean, I've seen um, Smiley's ad saying that she would not support a nationwide abortion ban. I think that when that nationwide abortion ban comes up, if it does, and if she was in the Senate, she would support it. Um, And I think um, I I do not, uh, I think it's very um, hard to imagine in this particular political climate, um, you know, a Jamie Herrera Butler style, um, you know, very conservative Republican bucking uh, the uh, the trend in the Senate, um, you know, among Republicans and saying, I'm going to be an iconoclast. I think she would probably find a way to explain why uh, she was not contradicting herself. You know, perhaps there is, would be an exemption for uh, the life of the woman or something like that. And you can say that's not a real nationwide abortion ban. Um, but I think, you know, I think these ads are designed to calm down uh, people in Washington state in particular. But, um, you know, I, I don't I don't see this first time candidate as, you know, some major iconoclast who's going to go against the system that is, you know, that is helping pay for these ads 
And, you know, I mean, some of her other ads are just, you know, wacky Republican conspiracy theories, you know, stadiums full of IRS agents coming to force you to pay for rich kids, law degrees, just bizarre stuff. So, um, so no, I, I, I do think abortion is very much um, in danger. I think that Patty Murray, um, you know, speaking of like our, our personal biases, I'll, I'll put mine on the table. You know, I, I worry about that stuff. And I think Patty Murray's ads and her concern are, you know, are well-placed and, and, and probably pretty effective. Jonathan in reaction. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, uh, the Dobbs decision for the Supreme Court was the best gift that for the Democrats could have gotten on the electoral issue, um, really energized the Democratic base. Um, Patty Murray is also a uh, is I think is she five terms now? Joni might know four terms this might might be going for a fifth term. She's she's been consistently quite popular. Um, and um, Patty. So, OK. Um, yeah, 1992, I think, was right. her first came okay. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, she's consistently pretty popular. The polling has been a little, we're a little, was a little bit tighter earlier uh, in the race, I think, pre-Dobbs, I think, um, uh, would, um, it was a little dicier maybe, but um, she's consistent, she's done a lot to inge- to in- endear herself to voters over the years. Um, I don't know. I just thought that sort of this this GOP playbook, as Erica was said, uh, rightly said, is sort of this national um, national strategy of these urban liberal hellholes. Um, just kind of feels like kind of a, a little bit of a yawn to me. It doesn't feel like it's um, a uh, particularly inventive technique to go after somebody who loves Patty Murray, who is so entrenched uh, and has a record to run on. On the topic of what Seattle is doing about some of the issues that. Uh... Republicans like Tiffany Smiley decry. Uh, Erica, Seattle pays people, human service providers, and uh, the mayor has reversed himself and is now proposing not to raise their pay to match inflation. Why that reversal? Well, first of all, Bill, great segue. I guess it kind of ruins it by calling it out. So, um, right. yeah, so the, the mayor proposes the budget, um, the Seattle Council um you know, disposes it. And, uh, and basically uh, the, the city a couple of years ago, when Bruce Harrell was on the council voted that to, um, to require human services contracts to go up by the rate of inflation, the intent being um, that people working for those organizations, which include homelessness organizations would get a raise uh, worth at least inflation. So their, their wages wouldn't slip, you know, on a perpetual basis as they had been. Um, Harrell uh, made a big statement at the time and actually added an amendment emphasizing that this was was intended for times of, uh, of not just times of plenty, but also times of economic downturn, which we're in now. Um, so fast forward three years, Harold is mayor, and he wants to um, to cap those mandatory increases at 4%, which would essentially require the council to overturn that law that they just passed and that Harold supported. Um, so, you know, I asked, I asked him about this at a recent press conference, and he said, basically, this is not contradictory uh, because we are you know, trying to prioritize those folks by giving them something of a bump. But, um, you know, we've got to balance all these competing priorities. So I, I do think that's a contradiction um, because uh, a bump of 4% is actually, you know, a decrease in real wages. Um, they would be getting a 7.6% increase this year. So Erica, I think that's what kind be of jobs battle. are these? Can we give a, just a few? Quick yeah, examples? we're talking about like people making, you know, $20 an hour, $19, $20 an hour going out on the streets and doing outreach to um, direct street outreach to people um, in, in crisis. Uh, people, you know, that the, the folks that, you know, you see on the streets um, have experiencing mental health breakdowns, um, trying to get people into treatment, trying to get people into shelter. I mean, these are, you know, by and large, some very, very um, long hours, low paid jobs that um, have incredibly high burnout. And, you know, when we talk about um, the attrition at places like the jail and the police department and high turnover, I mean, that's happening with these emergency service workers, too. Uh, we just don't we don't talk about it as much. They're not direct city employees, but, um, but they have incredibly high turnover and, you know, very low rate of institutional knowledge. You know, people just come and they leave because they burn out and the wages just, you know, aren't worth it. Jonathan. Yeah, Erica is right. Um, the, uh, if you think about what problem Bruce Harrell is trying to solve in the human services system, a lot of it goes to the staffing. I know they have beds they bought and I think this might be County as well. The County bought um, hotels 
and they haven't been able to open the beds because they don't have the staff to do it. So if what we know we need is a more robust homeless services system, um, when you don't have the bodies to fulfill it, to fill to fill the jobs and, and deliver the services, then it makes me wonder if this is sort of a uh, kind of a uh, a move to kind of you know cut off your nose to spite your face uh, kind of move. Uh, I, I also was curious, and I don't cover the budget, city budget, like Erica does, but you know, going back to this, the growth and then a budget for the show. Looking back at um, went back and looked over the, sort of the history of how much the budget of city the city has grown. You know, the discretionary fund um, in 2015-16 was a billion dollars, and now it's up to 1.6 billion dollars. Um, it's and it's real money that is the city has grown, and this is obviously the the real estate boom really helped fatten the coffers of the city. Um, but I'm just kind of wondering about that's, that's an increase that's much higher than inflation. Um, wondering about um, what the city's budget hole is really about. Well, look, this is the first time in, in a while that the city or the, and I don't know if this applies to the state yet, but we're in a downturn. They haven't really uh, played, played their budgets like that because the, everything was growth. Uh, I will be redundant here if I say we need more workers, and some of them might be migrants. Um, and then, you know, I just think that, you know, this, the budget has grown, and then you have a mayor and a council facing, oh, my gosh, this is uh, one of those years where we have to do the opposite of what we've been doing. And it's uncomfortable, and I do think these folks should be paid fair wages, that's for sure. Erica, final word on this? Well, the city, I mean, what what is what is the budget growth amounted to? I mean, it's been, you know, programs that the city has instituted, um, equitable development programs, programs to sort of um, try to reverse uh, policies of the past um, that have, you know, been discriminatory um, and policing. I mean, we have the budget for the police has increased year over year over year, and they're not seeing um, much of a real cut this year because they're investing um, their, you know, their cuts back into other SPD programs. So, I mean, there's... There's lot, the city does more than it used to, for sure. Um, and the question is, you know, do we want to do without those those services that the city has come to depend on, um, you know, or, 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 you know, as as is happening right now, figure out a way to cut without cutting, essentially. Yes, and and there's, we're talking about. I think Erica, you wrote a, a it's a hundred forty million dollar. Uh, budget gap, and one of the proposals there is to take some of the money from the jumpstart tax, this payroll tax that it was earmarked for housing, uh, Green New Deal programs, equitable development, small businesses. Uh, and, and Eric, I know you wrote this week about um, proposal and some pushback among uh, among the city council on the idea of y- using the jumpstart tax for money that it was not earmarked for. We've got I've got to put a pin in that because there are a couple other things I want to talk about uh, before we leave week in review. OK. Um, uh, the topic that I wanted to get to is that earlier in the show, we were talking about the King County's unfulfilled goal of zero youth incarceration. Well, here's another one, zero traffic deaths. Vision zero is this goal that many local governments have signed on to, including Seattle. Nevertheless, traffic deaths have instead gone up, Jonathan, particularly in Pierce County, um, your your newspaper did a, a focus on the county situation and what is the wider takeaway from what Pierce County is going through when it comes to a lack of traffic safety. Yeah, this is a really good story by David Croman um, on our traffic lab team. Uh, he looked at Pierce County because it, it was the highest uh, jump in pedestrian deaths um, over some time. Most all, most jurisdictions in control saw a jump in pedestrian deaths during the pandemic, which is interesting because, um, you know, theory is we, we were not out as much in the pandemic, at least early on. But I but the seems that in deaths has now um, has now continued post pandemic. I have theories that David said is that people got used to driving faster in the pandemic, empty roads going faster, and they liked going faster and they keep going faster. Um, you know, there's some other theories too um, about um, one theory being there maybe is more incapacitated people. Um, it's obviously there's no way of quantifying that. 
Um, but I, I like to focus on Pierce County. I, I grew up in eastern Pierce County, way at the far end of the exurbs, and drove through those those sprawl, the endless sprawl of eastern Pierce County a lot. And you think about it, what it would take to reduce pest, pedestrian deaths in those like six lane or eight lane um, municipal streets that function like highways. And for one thing, it requires the political will to do it, make people go slower. And then it's also expensive to, to solve these, um, the urban planning problems on streets that are already built. Um, you do things like have to raise crosswalks, a lot more long sign, you know, signage, medians. So um, it's, it's expen- it'd be expensive to, um, to, uh, to bring that real urban uh, um, vision zero urbanist uh, approach to um, making pedestrians safer. Um, and you wonder in Pierce County if there's the will to do it. Yeah. And and one more, I thought, important um, aspect of this that the story brought up was the that many of these large arterials and highways were laid when it was a much more rural area. And now you've got this fast growth so you've got these zoom zooms bumping up against all oh, suddenly there's a school there. There's a shopping center there. Uh, Jonathan, you're breaking up a little bit. So I heard we heard almost all of what you said. I just want to turn it over to, to Joni and Erica for any more reaction to these. This idea of zero traffic deaths, Seattle and beyond, and then the reality. Well, so the idea of zero traffic deaths is fantastic. The problem is that they're increasing. And my first reaction to these is usually, oh, it's all those distracted drivers trying to sneak onto their phones. And there's a fair amount of that going on, but there's more than that. And I feel like, and I read through the story and I was thinking about it because I think about this quite a bit. I feel like it's the bigger cars and the density in these new areas. And I'll give you an example. And also I kind of want to blame some traffic apps. I'll give you the example of Lake Washington Boulevard. And one of the traffic apps noted I think it was Waze, but I'm not sure one of them said, this is a way to go north-south without lights. Yes, but it's a very, very narrow street. And there are a ton of bikes on there. And there are a ton of pedestrians on there. But here's people trying, and you can see it because it's commuter times. Here's people trying to flood that street because they're not going to have uh, a traffic light. And they're, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dangerous out there sometimes, it seems. And so I do think that you have this, um, you know, this goal, which is, you know, we all agree we want to accommodate uh, folks on bikes and people walking. And yet we're, on the other hand, we're telling drivers, here's how you can go faster Mm -hmm. and in, in more places that now have more people. So, I mean, I think that I agree that completely unurban planning Pierce County is impossible at this point. Um, but, you know, I think that and, and I think that the problems that exist in Seattle are exactly the same as the problems that exist in Pierce County, just on a different level of development. I mean, we can slow down roads. We can add more crosswalks or, or you know, more signed intersections, more lights. Um, we can narrow roads that these are all things that, you know, yes, they are somewhat expensive, but they are doable. Um, they do require political will. Um, I think, you know, it's it's tempting always to blame, you know, individual drivers. And I certainly get mad at drivers all the time myself um, as a frequent pedestrian. But when you have road design, and I'm not talking about urban planning, but just road design that, you know, encourages people to drive fast, it's going to happen whether you're talking about Rainier Avenue South, which is, you know, which is a state highway for some of its length. Um, or, you know, our four lane highway in Pierce County, I mean, you can, you know, you can slow it down like the city has done in Seattle and in Columbia City, or you can, you know, allow it to be a place that encourages people to drive really fast. And, uh, and I think those are those are decisions that, you know, that municipalities and counties, you know, can make it's just, um, it's just that they're often unpopular, because people do like to drive fast. Hey everyone, I've got a speaking of fast. I, I've got a text from Julio Rodriguez, um, who's <laughs> about to uh, start a playoff game, and he's really he's hooked on the show. He's it's a driveway moment, but he but he say, "Can you wrap this up so that I can go play the Blue Jays?" So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll uh, we'll let you know finish this up for, so the team can can take the field. But we'll be right right, right back. Mm-hmm. 
KUOW's Week in Review, and it's time to leave you with something to smile about. I, uh, first of all, we're, we're doing the show live on a Friday. It gets repeated over the weekend. But as of now, the Mariners are just a few minutes away from playing their first uh, playoff game in, I think, 21 years. And I, I'm smiling that the Mariners are in the playoffs. I just wanted to check in with you all because I feel, of course, I want the Mariners to, I hope they go to the, the World Series and everything. It seems very promising that they made the playoffs, but I'm getting this sense of triumphalism uh, in Seattle as if the Mariners have already done something. And I don't want to be a, the curmudgeon except they, they won 90 games. They won just a little under 56% of their games. It's not bad, but they are in the playoffs because the Baseball has continued to expand the number of teams that make it into the playoffs. They finished like fifth in the American League. So it's great. I'm happy that they're in the playoffs. I'm hopeful. Go Mariners and all that. I just I feel like I'm a little out of sync with Seattle. It's like you go to a, a Christmas party and they're singing Old Lang Syne. It's still happy, but uh, but it seems a little early. It's promising. I'm just going to say I'm glad and I'm and I feel hope and promise, not yet triumph. Go on. Okay, so you're right, Bill, that Seattle is treating this playoff berth like it's winning the World Series. But can you let us do that? Because that's what's making us smile. Okay, that is my job. That's what we do. Now, we are underdogs, but here's what's cool about it. Here's the big smile. You know, this is one of those special moments uh, in history, and you can think about it, like 1995, like 2001, like I think it was 2014 uh, with the Super Bowl win. What this does is it helps us transcend our differences. Sometimes we're a divided Mm, city. This is something we can all agree on. And, you know, laugh when you tell a joke about Julio calling you, unless he really did, which maybe he did. did. But, you know, think about it. I mean, I had a family where sometimes the only thing I could talk to them about was sports. And Seattle's a big family. It's like the bigger, bigger family. And this is something we can we can talk to each other about, and maybe we couldn't talk about some of those other topics. Yes, totally agree. Look, we got like 30 seconds left. Who wants to weigh in before we say goodbye? I really appreciate the contrarian take. I appreciate that you're willing to be the curmudgeon. Okay. Thank you. I, you know, the, this, this is a team that was down in the dumps uh, in June and made this incredible turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a fun team. It doesn't feel like a, a team with very many jerks or, yeah. you know, uh, bad dudes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh so, um, yeah, I, I was Joni. I'll, I'll be watching. We're all together on that. Erica, anything to add? I know you love sports. I, I just appreciate everybody not making me talk about sports. <laughs> I know, because we're out of time. That's how I designed love it. Love hearing your thoughts, though. Sports I ball. bailed you out. All right. That is uh, Erica Barnett, publicer, uh, Publicola's co-founder and editor. From the Seattle Times, you've got investigations editor Jonathan Martin and political analyst, contributing columnist Joni Balter. Uh, love you guys. Thanks. Go Ams. And thank you for being our show this week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Thanks to Kevin Kniestead and Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu and Kevin Kniestead. And we'll see you again in a week. Go Mariners.